Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communication. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, Assistant Professor of Digital Communication at Georgian Court University by the beautiful Jersey Shore. Today's guest is Diana Seneschal, and the topic of our conversation is her book, Mind Over Memes, Passive Listening, Toxic Talk, and Other Modern Language Foley's. Welcome, Diana, and thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to, to chat with you uh, about your wonderful book. Um, but first, can you tell us, um, tell our listeners a little bit more about your professional and your educational background, as well as what uh, what you're up to these days? So my background is nothing if not eclectic. I have done many different things in my life. And I, my degree is in Russian literature. I have a PhD from Yale in Russian literature. And that sounds like preparation for academia, which is precisely what I didn't want to do. And so when I decided that I didn't want to go into academia, which had nothing to do with the subject matter. I love the subject matter, but I didn't want the atmosphere, partly because it was too familiar to me. There are many things I objected to, but beyond that, it was what I'd grown up in. It was too familiar, too comfortable in some ways. I struck out, went out to San Francisco, as so many people do, and I worked in counseling and publishing and computer programming. And that all seems disparate, far flung. <laughs> how, how different from each other can they get? But there are actually many co- connections. And when I came to teaching a bit later, after coming to the East Coast, I found a place for programming. And certainly computers found a place for publishing, putting together literary journals for my students and on my own outside of school. And certainly the counseling work helped me with my teaching. So everything came together. But not only that, but of course, the literary studies as well, and the study of languages. So although I've been all over the place with my work, there has been an increasing focus or, let's say, uh, an interweaving of the different interests. And so when I began teaching in New York City public schools, in a middle school in Brooklyn specifically, that was my first school, I saw all kinds of possibilities in these kids. They came, I was teaching them English as a second language and they came from all over the place. And I saw room to direct musicals in which they acted and teach literature and hold discussions and all the different things that had been happening in my life that I had been doing came together in teaching. And that's part of what I love about it is that it has room for everything. That's great. Um, And how did you get interested in Russian lit to begin with? (laughs) Okay, well, uh, we go back even further. Well, I was interested in it before we went and spent a year in the Soviet Union, but we spent a year in Moscow when I was 14 years old. But I was already interested. And my goal when we went there was to be able to read Dostoevsky in the original by the end of the year. So I would normally have been in the eighth grade there, because their grade system is a little bit different. I was going into 10th grade in the US, but my age group 
would be eighth grade, but I said I wanted to go into the ninth grade because that's when they read all the classic Russian literature. And I uh, was admitted in, and they basically let me sit there in class, but I insisted on participating because I wanted to learn the language. And by the end of the year, yes, I was reading Dostoevsky in the original. But the interesting thing is Dostoevsky is surprisingly easy when it comes to vocabulary. There are many abstract words in Dostoevsky's writing. And once you have a, a, an abstract vocabulary in Russian, you can read a lot of literature, but not all of it. So there are other authors whom I find quite difficult to read. And and even today, I need a dictionary to understand them. Yeah, that's super fascinating because you do mention, um, like it's kind of sprinkled throughout your book, your um, some of your uh, experiences in the Soviet Union. So I, I mean, it, I guess it would be fair to say that you really are a lover of language, right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, Not just yes, the English language, that's... but just the lover of language. Yes, and it's hardly a week goes by when somebody asks me, how many languages do you speak? And I get asked that so often, I have to ask them, uh, what do you mean by speak? Because I take that seriously, and I don't, fluency is a high level. To me, fluency is beyond the conversational level. It's beyond being able to read comfortably. Fluency is where you are able to nimbly navigate the differences between similar words and understand just what word order is proper and what which particular word is proper for what you want to say, but to do that naturally without too much hesitation. And that's and there's even more to it than that. So fluency is probably, if I if I define fluency in that way, I've been close to fluent in some languages besides English. But at this point, I don't consider myself fluent in them, in the languages oh, okay. that I study. Okay. Yeah. And is that uh, just lack, lack of practice, uh, cultural immersion, linguistic immersion? Yes, they come and go. And the thing with the language is you can sound very good, but you st there are still many things that you don't know. So after the year in Moscow, I my pronunciation was good enough that they didn't think I was American. Many people thought I was Baltic you know, from Lithuania or Latvia. Mm -hmm. And I could people's first impression was that I spoke very well. But I also knew how to focus on saying things I knew how to say, and there were areas of the language that I didn't know so well. So in it was either undergraduate or graduate school, I'd forgotten. I was being given an oral exam, and everything was going splendidly until the last part where the examiner said, okay, so you, your doorknob has come off of your door, and you have to go to the neighbors and ask for a screwdriver. And I was simply stopped. <laughs> and <laughs> things like a practical, some there's some area, practical areas of language that I simply didn't know, and other sets of vocabulary that were unfamiliar to me. So I could go on for an hour about that, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm I am uh, bilingual in the sense that my my parents are immigrants from Brazil, and I did live there for oh. almost seven years. So uh, in terms of, uh, and, and I agree with you that there's different ways to define fluency. Um, so I do have fluency in the sense that, uh, you know, I can speak, read and write uh, Portuguese. But, you know, if, if I were to write a dissertation, you know, academic high level 
of fluency, that would be more challenging for me uh, versus writing it in English, right? Uh, I could mm-hmm. do it, but it probably take twice as long because <laughs> there's, you know, there's uh, nuances to the language and to the discipline in Brazil, for example, that are not here in the U.S. And you do need to understand all of those nuances to really be able to to write and, and speak uh, to the appropriate audience, right? Yes, this is true. And if you've grown up with, if if you spent some of your childhood, did you spend part of your childhood in Brazil? Yes. So basically kindergarten through sixth grade. So grammar school. So that makes a big difference because it does. The, the way you learn to speak is a child's language. And certainly some, some of the school at school, you learned some more formal language and some more academic language, but not that much in elementary school, right? So you, right. you come out with a beautiful fluency in spoken language from the point of view of a child through age 10 or 11. But then after that, there are entire registers that would be less familiar. Right, exactly. Yeah. So in terms of linguistic fluency, in terms of, of being able to speak it, it's at a very high level. But as mm-hmm. I mentioned, like with academic writing, if I were to write for an academic audience of PhDs in Portuguese, that would be much more of a challenge uh, than it would yes. be in the way, because I don't practice it at that level. I mean, I speak Portuguese every single day, but not, you know, but I don't engage with the Portuguese language at the high academic level that I do with English. So yeah, absolutely. There, there is that. And so people will ask me, do you think in Portuguese? Do you dream in Portuguese? <laughs> do you, uh, you know, and so on. I was like, well, it, it, it definitely switches when I'm in Brazil. Uh, it, it, you know, the, it, I start, the Portuguese becomes the primary language, you know, and then within a couple of weeks, I lose whatever Americanized accent I have. But that's also because there's that immersion concept, right? Where you, I, like I'm immersed in the culture, in the language. Um, and so it does change in, in relation to that. That activates the part of my brain that it's like, oh, it's all Portuguese now versus English. Yes, it's all around you. And your first instinct is to speak Portuguese when you're immersed in it. You're not going to believe this, but that was my, we lived in Brazil when I was a baby. We lived in Fortaleza because my parents were uh, on a Fulbright exchange. And so that was actually my first language, but I don't remember any of it. It was the language that I began speaking. (laughs) That's so great. Yeah, that's such a, that's, this is a great kind of foundation for this really awesome book uh, that you wrote. I, I really love it on a lot of different levels. And as somebody who has um, had, you know, lived uh, abroad and, and spoke different languages, a lot of it really kind of spoke to me, not only as a as an academic, but also as uh, somebody who, who loves language as well. Can you talk about, and, and, you know, I know that you talk about in the book, but what was really the, what, what led you to write this book? Like what ignited the fire? for you? Well, let's see. First of all, it was in some ways a continuation of my first book or a different way of looking at the themes of my first book. And the first book, the title is Republic of Noise, The Loss of Solitude in Schools and Culture. And I was looking at how uh, solitude, by which I mean the independence of thought, a way of standing apart from the crowd, was being crowded out by overemphasis on group work and rapid activity and hyper interactivity and things like that. It isn't an anti-technology book. I talk about technology, but it's really more about the increasing emphasis on 
teams and groups at the expense of quiet, independent thought. But it, solitude uh, is difficult to define. There are many def- definitions of it. And I was really taking the stance that it has to do with some kind of intellectual independence. And so here, I was taking that intellectual independence in a different direction. So I had encountered so many buzzwords as a teacher, so many, say, for instance, education reforms where everybody is supposed to do this or everybody is supposed to do that. But not only that, along with those uh, new fads or or overarching uh, pedagogical models that would be brought in and out every few years, there would be some words that when I heard them, I thought these words need questioning. For example, well, and I don't discuss this one in the book, but cooperative learning. And then what I do discuss being part of a team, for instance, because as a teacher, I found that everything was being called a team and it hadn't, not everything had been called a team when I was growing up and not every, certainly in my studies of literature, not every association in every poem or or novel that I read was called a team, but now things were being called teams that didn't seem to me, uh, didn't seem exactly similar to teams. And I wondered about that, but I also wondered why there wasn't more questioning of such words and the the opening chapter the takeaway that's that was the one that i believe set off the entire book because this was not only in the classroom but elsewhere where i found uh so in journalism in education in public presentations public speech speech and even in the uh pop, common approaches to knowledge how you uh, how you gauge whether or not you understand a situation. It has come to hinge on the takeaway. Do you have that little pocketable summary that you can then repeat to somebody else? And the emphasis on the takeaway in schools and outside of schools and in the news and many other places and many other contexts takes away from a more complex understanding of the issue at hand. That too much, of course, the te- the takeaway is essential. You need some kind of summary. You need some kind of distillation. But equally important is the recognition that the distillation is not the entirety. It's not everything. And to be able to to see the cracks in the summary, to be able to to hear and feel the uncertainties, the shades in the words that that sound closely, the 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 sound well articulated, that sound that sound tightly linked, tightly composed, and to be able to raise questions about what you've heard is not only a skill, but it's a way of life that to me seems uh, endangered when there is so much. Uh, when there's not only so much desire, so so much emphasis on the quick answers, but when the quick answers, in effect, become marketable items. Yeah, and that's and that is problematic on on a number of levels. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think what I and I remember you mentioned this. I forget which chapter it was, and this kind of stood out to me as. Uh, 
I think another thing we share in common is that I do have industry experience. Um, so even though I'm an academic, I've spent 15 years working in the industry in a variety of different fields. And I feel like um, in reading this, that a lot of this comes from, it, it kind of starts as business industry trends. Mm-hmm. The idea of the toxic person, the pocketable summary, the uh, let's do sh- social justice. Um, so a lot of the things that you talk about really seem to start there. And then somehow they, you know, get into academia, you know, teamwork and collaboration, buzzwords, creativity, Um you know, so so I feel like that's kind of where it starts, and I think it's problematic even in the industry, because um, as somebody who did I did educational consulting for a pediatric hospital, and a lot of it had to do with many of the things that you talk about in a slightly different context. But when we kind of look at the foundation of the language, I would be questioning as an academic in you know even in a nonprofit environment, saying, well, what do we really mean when we talk about creative collaboration? Let's, yes. let's think about that. What does that actually mean? Because it sounds like you're just wanting to say things that sound fun <laughs> and nice when creativity is actually a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yes. Right. And it, and it actually, it, creativity, the whole idea is that you actually go outside of the box, right? Yes. And like truly outside of it. It really is about drawing outside of the lines um, and, and you need space to do that. And a lot of times, even within the the restrictions of deadlines and, and restriction of a corporate structure or any sort of like infrastructure, power structure really limits the ability by default for quote team members to be creative. Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, I agree with that because sometimes what people mean by creativity is brainstorming and those are not the same. So no. yes, <laughs> they're not they, <laughs> right. <laughs> they get mixed up a lot. So for instance, you, you will have, businesses that will put people in a room and tell them to brainstorm for half an hour. And then they will, uh, someone will sift through the ideas that people came up with and perhaps choose one or two to work with. But then the actual work with that idea, the idea that has been chosen, that's a much longer, more difficult, more detailed process that requires great knowledge of the thing that is to be developed. Um, it re- requires background knowledge. It also requires working knowledge and an, and an ability to experiment, try new things, and understand the workings of what it is that you're doing. So that initial brainstorm may be good for getting some ideas rolling for a business, but to equate that with creativity is folly. And I've seen that equation happen again and again, where people say, okay, let's have more creativity. And so they have people writing things on post-its and then putting the post-its on the wall and and then doing a gallery walk where people walk around and see all the different things that that they wrote on their post-its and they're supposed to be impressed with this. And it's not. It's not impressive at all. It's depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And brainstorming, you know, having a good brainstorming session is really the foundation to what can lead to creativity, but it's not the same thing. Right. So it's it's right. So I I think it's you have to it's a step in the process of like a much longer, much more difficult trying process of of getting to where you need to be or where you want to be. So I think it, it like making everything pocketable. As as you say, even like making creativity pocketable, whether it's in a classroom or in a conference room, it's it is problematic because then you're really taking away the what you really everything that you need to be doing to actually get that end result of creativity. 
you're just you're taking it all away because otherwise you can't compress it to the point that you want it to. And you're losing all of the really good stuff, right? That needs to happen um, in those in those scenarios. And it takes a long time. It can. And creativity comes in so many different forms. That's the other thing, too. You can't generalize creativity. And the extent to which you can teach it is questionable. A certain kind of creativity can be encouraged in particular contexts, but that's not what people seem to be talking about when they talk about teaching creativity. They seem to be talking more about something that would serve a business, and that simply is not the same thing. But yes, some kinds of creative work take years, and other kinds can happen much more quickly, but they may be steps uh, towards something much bigger. And as you mentioned, the brainstorming can be useful, but even there, there are different forms. And for some people, playing with an idea alone uh, is a lot more, say, productive, promising, enlightening than chattering about it in a group. And then on the other hand, there are people who like to run their ideas by others, not necessarily talk about it rapidly in a group, but just come up with something and then talk it out with somebody else and hear that person's ideas. And so there are there are many different ways to go about it, but but the fundamental thing is you need to be working on something. <laughs> so there needs right. to be substance there. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point of creativity in the classroom, this idea of teaching creativity, I'm not really sure that you can because it's so it's so different to every person, not only how we understand and how we are, quote, creative, but how can we teach that? I think it's really about the methods to unleash play and to foster things that get you to be creative. So it's about fostering an environment uh, that really has, in in some ways, can't be super restrictive, which again, in the business world, it is restrictive by default. And so it kind of quashes creativity from the beginning and reduces into something that it can't really function. And that really does and can happen in the educational system as well, I think. So it's really about creating an environment to foster the creativity. And that also depends on the instructor, on the students, on the content, on the resources available. Um, so I definitely, I definitely see creativity as as a major buzzword for the last many years. Yes, and another problem with creativity is it needs some solitary work. It needs some background work. It needs some hiddenness, let's say. And there's pressure in the business world, in the education world, and elsewhere to put your work out there right away. And this is also online. (laughs) Put it out there. Show everybody. And that can take away from the longer, slower brooding process of of testing it against yourself. And I'm on both sides of this because with my students, I encourage them in their writing and I'm right now starting an online literary journal for them. And, and on the one hand, I think this is good because it gets gives them a chance to show their writing, to, to, to work on it, to make it better, and then to show it and to get responses from people. And the first issue will be coming out very soon. But I also did this in New York City. And it's exciting for them. And they, they write things that they wouldn't have written otherwise when there's a, a chance of publication and the responses from people can be interesting and helpful and encouraging. And then on the other hand, I have had students who have said, no, I, I'm not ready to publish my work. I feel that I need a lot more experience before I publish anything. And I respect that. It's 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 something uh, personal. It 
for some people, it could be a good thing and for others not. Right. I, I agree. I mean, that's wonderful that you have this publication outlet for them um, because there is an element of um, solitude in the process um, because it ultimately is many times we have to have that conversation with ourselves. So I do find that um, there are those who always want to work with someone else, but that can be to your detriment. If you don't have that conversation with your own ideas and be able to kind of, again, test it against yourself and then you present it to others. Um, and then there are those who never want to present it to others. But then how do you, if you never present your ideas to be challenged by somebody who looks at things differently, then how can you ever push your work to that next phase to, to make it even better, right? So I think there's, it, it does become very complex and it all depends on the person, depends on the context. And to your point about publications with students, like my students is the same thing. I think, you know, I have one student who's a bit more terrified of publishing another one who's more, uh, you know, embraces it. And there's a lot of, I think, even cultural, personal and academic factors as to, you know, what works for one student versus another. And it's just about perhaps like mentoring and guiding them in the ways that work for them so that they have the moment to be, uh, you know, be on their own to do it, but to know that they have support as well. And, and, you know, a publication really does, it has all of its specific constraints, like at least in, in academic, right? So these students would be publishing a peer-reviewed uh, art of a journal, but it still allows them a freedom that doesn't have like the grading component to it. So in some ways, I, I do feel like even for them, it is liberating to be able to be like, oh, hey, I'm not writing this for a grade. I'm writing this for a publication. And that's really empowering for, um, for you know, at a young age to be able to do that and to say that. It's exciting for them. Yes, yes, it's empowering. It's exciting for them. All kinds of things. I think another important thing is that the teacher or the mentor in this particular situation should step back and not assume full authority because even a gifted writer does not always know which of the students will turn out to be a gifted writer, which of the students will be a writer one day. And you can certainly notice talent and different kinds of talent and glimmers of talent of this and that kind. And at the same time, it's important to remind oneself as a teacher and the students that my judgment, the teacher's judgment is not the last word. And to encourage them to take the comments and think about them on their own and decide which ones to keep and what which ones to reject. But also to let this be a time of practice, even when the work is being published, it's still a form of practice and to look at it that way instead of looking at it as something that has to be either perfect or terrible. Instead, these are all uh, experiments. These are all uh, pieces that they are trying out in one way or another and they're learning about writing as they do this. And for me, I point out what I see, but I also know that I don't know who among them will stick with writing, who among them will be a writer later on in life. I don't know that my own judgments of their writing are 100% accurate, but I do my best keeping in mind the imperfection of this process. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think, and you mentioned that in the book too, this the, the idea of discipline and discernment. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of different qualities that can make a great writer. Yes. And, um, and I, you know, I tell my students all the time just in, in saying, hey, you know, 
go read one of Stephen King's first drafts. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's going to be publishable? It's not. <laughs> There's, you know, you can take any great or like popular author. It's like either it's not it's not going to happen. It's a process. It's a process that never ends. And that's the great thing about writing, and the terrifying thing about writing is that it just doesn't, you know, it it doesn't end. And I and I tell them and I assure them like I am not infallible as a writer because I have editors and those above me saying, hey, these are all the things that you need to do. So no matter where you're at in your career, there's always going to be gatekeepers. There's always going to be um, peer reviewers that are going to be challenging you and and giving you thoughts on what you can work on. So I so I I also kind of you know bring that um, in my conversations to students so that they understand that writing is not about perfection because there is no such thing. It's really about revision. You have to revise, and it takes time to find your voice. And yes. it's okay if you don't know that as an undergraduate. And certainly for you, even as like in in high school, um, you just have to allow yourself time and just recognize that writing, published or not, it really is part of a much bigger, lengthier process. Yes. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that you talk about in the book that also um, struck me was, um, and and I think this you also speak about this in your own um with your own kind of background is the the students who kind of fit the mold, if you will, versus those that don't. And sometimes you, you want the misfit rather than the fit. And um, can you talk a little bit more about that um, and, and how you, you came about and what your experiences are with generating that, um, that idea? Well, the the paradox here is that the misfit can actually fit, that there is a need for a misfit in any particular situation, that when kids and adults and people in any context expect everybody to fit in to the culture or into the group's expectation in a particular way, that the group group itself becomes impoverished. When the group is able to recognize those people who don't fit and recognize their contributions, then the group is enriched. But also the person who doesn't fit can learn over time. And I I say this as a perennial misfit from early childhood. I I did not fit in. Uh, Can learn over time how to not only enjoy it, but how to build really wonderful relationships that are based in part on misfitting. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean looking for other people who have felt rejected, but instead building those kind of very independent friendships where you recognize something in each other and it's about something that you appreciate in each other and each other's personality and it isn't dependent on fitting into either person's uh, social group or anything like that. And I've had in my life so many interesting independent friendships that have also in some at sometimes been associated with my workplace or with a group of friends or with a particular place where I was, but also had that independence and that independent recognition. But the other part of it is that if you are a little bit of a misfit, and I don't mean to the point of being miserable, but if you have a slight sense of not completely conforming, perhaps being a little bit out of sorts. I don't know where the the noise is coming from, whether this is uh, somewhere. Okay, it seems a little bit better now. Uh, A little bit out of sorts. 
you can... Uh, okay, this is much better. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, okay. There was some noise. A little bit of noise there. Okay. Yes, when you, you, you have a, uh, the experience of being a little bit out of sorts, but not to the point of being miserable, you actually are able to look at things from the outside. You also have a perspective on your class, your peers, your workplace, your neighborhood. And that perspective can be comforting. That perspective can give you strength where you don't feel the pressure to do things the way other people do, but you allow yourself, make room for yourself to live and think the way that you actually do. So to to bring it down to what I was saying in the book, being a slight misfit, whether in a workplace or in a school or elsewhere, can be a great source of strength, both for the person who is not quite fitting in and for the receiving institution. And so we have, I think that's another thing in the industry that's really, really common is this idea of being a cultural fit and hiring people to be a cultural fit. How do you think organizations, whether they are, you know, academic or, you know, nonprofits or corporations, how can they go about changing the hiring system or just the kind of quote culture that they are currently hiring under so that they can really look for individuals that may not seem like a fit, but actually are? First of all, there has to be some change to the automated hiring system. The automation is part of the cause of this because so many resumes, so many applications get rejected offhand because they don't have the proper keywords. And also people then pad their resumes with keywords and and that can just lead to a big mess and a lot of deception and posing and worrying and so forth. So part of it is the over-automation of the hiring process. But there's another part too, which is that the cultural fit has also become a euphemism for other things. It can it, it, it can be euphemism for whether or not the interviewers felt they got along, know that whether they actually liked this person who sat before them in the interview room. It can also be a convenient way to hire somebody whom they already had planned to hire and to turn other people down who are qualified. You can't usually be sued for choosing someone whom you deemed a better fit unless the person rejected can allege and show evidence that there was something else going on there. But fit doesn't get challenged much in the courts, and that's part of what's at stake here. So both the automation and the euphemism would have to go. But then another part is the uh, a willingness to regard careers differently as well. So often hiring committees picture a career path, a career track, and not everybody falls on that. And more and more, we're seeing uh, job insta- workplace instability, industry instability, and th- not only through choice, but through necessity, people have had to change careers and jobs and so forth. And so it should not, there should be less stigma attached to changing jobs or doing something for a while because it is a job. A person should not have to prove that this is actually 
absolutely the thing that he or she has always wanted to do and that it is the perfect step on the next path towards some kind of advancement. Just relax about these things and, and let feel free to hire someone who will just plain do a good job, period. Yeah, it's, it is very challenging when you're going up, when at the very beginning, the very first stage is that it's a computer based yes. on not very intelligent algorithm, right? That are, that are tossing away your, um, that are tossing aside your, your application, uh, your resume. And, and that is really frustrating. I think anyone who's been in the, in the job market in the last 10 years, five years even, um, have, you know, I mean, I have felt that frustration myself, um, in, in being on both sides of the coin, uh, you know, both sides of, of, you know, the, of hiring and being hired. And it really is frustrating when you start automating the process, you really remove the human component of it. And how can you possibly hire a great person just based on what's on paper? So, um, so that that's definitely a challenge. And do you think that um, this relates also to the ongoing debate of college admissions and moving away from, you know, standardized testing, like so much emphasis on standardized testing. How do you feel that this idea fits into the opportunities that high schools, uh, you know, high school students, graduating high school students are getting or not getting based on the schools that they apply for? The, the, so it's the schools and the students are in a bind either way, because if the emphasis is on standardized testing, there are students who will lose out, who will not be considered because their their scores simply weren't high enough. And if the emphasis is on leadership and extracurricular activities and personality and all of those things, then, then the onus is on the students to show that they have all those uh, leadership qualities and that great personality. And that in itself can be confining and maddening and confusing, ambiguous, and all of those things. And so there, the, one problem here is that the system has become so overloaded and for security, st- students are applying to so many colleges. And if there were a way to reduce the number of college applications, have everybody apply to say three or four, and that's it, it would open up uh, a little bit more time and room to consider the applications more carefully. But another part of that is that that admissions committees have to think carefully about what they mean when they say that they want leaders, when they say that they want people who are going to be change agents and things like that, because people who make change in the world often don't do that in blatant ways in high school. Uh, they, they they may be the ones behind the books, just learning lots of things. And leadership also takes many different forms, and not everybody has to be a leader, at least not in the uh, the usual sense of the word. So here, this comes back to language. Admissions committees should look very carefully at the words that they're using and the concepts and assumptions be- behind the words, but. Of course, when they are receiving thousands of applications and trying to get more applications to appear more selective, then it becomes close to impossible to do this. And another side of that is that, yes, colleges have been trying to encourage more applications so that then they admit a smaller percentage of the ones that applied. So it's a really challenging battle. Yes, yes. It it really is. Um, And you mentioned 
uh, a little bit about like students, where students should apply in, in terms of where they fit or may not fit. So you do talk a little bit about this idea of perhaps students choosing a school that they that's an environment that may not be familiar to them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So students are often told, oh, oh, it at their schools and in meetings and test preparation and all kinds of college preparatory sessions and so forth, that they should look for that good fit and that there will be that college that matches them, that's just right for them. And it is true of the United States, and I admire the U.S. university and college system beyond what I can say. I believe that it it could well be the best in the world. I don't have enough knowledge to say that, but it is amazing in its variety and richness that you have tiny colleges out in Wyoming with maybe a, a, a under 20 students in each uh, admitted each year. And you have uh, universities with 5,000 students or more admitted every year. And you have colleges that are religious in nature and colleges that are uh, very focused on the sciences and colleges that where they read the classics at colleges where there are no requirements at all. And so, yes, the temptation is there to look at all the possibilities and find that one that is just perfect for you. But the catch there is that that college is also a time when you go through a lot of changes. And some changes can be spurred, some important changes can be spurred by a mismatch. You, you, you find yourself in a place that you don't really know, where you aren't really like the other people there. And unless you're miserably isolated, unless it's it's a situation that, that becomes in some way abusive, you can make something good out of that mismatch. You can learn a lot from it. You can stretch yourself. You can uh, try things that you wouldn't have tried before. You can understand the way the world in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm not saying that people should go look for colleges where they will be uncomfortable. No, (laughs) college needs a a certain amount of comfort too. But welcome those mismatches, welcome that slight incongruity and give up the search for that place where you'll be 100% comfortable because that isn't even a good thing. Right, just the idea of the defamiliarization process is is very empowering. Uh, And certainly within language, uh, that's, that's an important process of, I think, of human growth, emotionally, intellectually. Um, And so I I agree with you that you don't want to be in a situation where it's stifled to the point that you are so uncomfortable that you can't grow. But some level of discomfort is actually, that's when you, you know that you're in the right environment, is when you have a situation where you're like, oh, it's a challenge and you have to be vulnerable to make it through that challenge. And, And even if you fail, well, you, you learned from it. There's still something you're gaining from that. And that's really what, that's, I think, a huge component of what college is all about. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, one of the chapters that I really, really liked, chapter seven, talks about the toxicity of toxic. And, and I really, I love that you bring, that you have the conversation about the word toxic, because it's yet another buzzword about toxic people and toxic relationships. And I appreciate that you actually, you know, you, you do discuss the fact that there is, uh, you know, there is a, a kind of like a time and place and context in which that is real. And that's true. There are truly 
toxic people or toxic relationships. So if you're looking at it from a psychological perspective, someone who's a sociopath and abusive, that is a toxic person in a toxic relationship. But you're really more talking about how that is really kind of in some ways watered down, again, in, in a business setting to talk about individuals being toxic in ways that aren't really toxic at all. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, there the, there has been a spreading of this term from uh, application to people who are genuinely abusive, people who are looking to take advantage of others, people who are looking to use others in any way possible, or people who have hatred stored up in them, hostility stored up in them that they that they that they, they, they pour onto others at any whenever they see an opening and there are people like that in the world but many times when you see books advising people how to avoid toxic people in their life or how to free themselves from toxicity they are talking about something much much more general and they will uh, widen this, the so-called the proverbial net, now mixing lots of metaphors, to include people who just are going through something difficult, complaining maybe a little bit too much, maybe coming to you with a problem more often than you're comfortable with, or sharing a little bit more of themselves than you're comfortable hearing, or uh, getting too emotional or too distant. Somebody who isn't uh, isn't really warm, isn't gregarious could be perceived as toxic and so the where the use of the word toxic goes wrong is where it presumes that anybody who poses an inconvenience to you is somehow poisonous and that if you somehow got rid of all those inconveniences in your life all those difficult or slightly difficult or or puzzling people, you would then be able to soar to success and fulfillment and all those good things. And that's simply false. The Just as with misfits, there's a, a, there's a need for difficulty of a certain kind up to a certain point in our everyday relationships and to make room for people's troubles, certainly not to be hearing about them all the time to be weighed down by them, but to recognize that life can be difficult in many different ways, and not to be afraid of that, and not to be afraid of the person who may make you a little bit uncomfortable at first. There are people who, and it's it's it may have something to do with your own background, the 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 way that you are used to being, the way that you are the 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 people around you were. A person coming from somewhere else may seem. Uh, may may seem threatening in some way, or may seem may may take some energy to be around that person, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. And do you and do you think that 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 this kind of toxic <laughs> toxic use of of the word toxic? Um, do you think that that relates to how? people so often want to just place others in buckets and, and kind of look at people in black and white uh, ways and, and, and kind of maybe attach stereotypes because that's an easier, quote, easier way to judge someone versus actually understanding that there's so much complex and nuance in an individual context, it, it, not only in differences in personality, but differences in what they could be going through and what they have gone through in their life and things like that. 
Yes, and this comes back to the takeaway. It's the the overuse of the word toxic, the careless use of the word toxic, is very sim. You know, it's much like uh, summarizing an issue in a way that's restrictive and overly simplistic. You call a person toxic, and you're done with that person. You now are certain that you know what that person is about. You are certain that you can remove yourself from whatever difficulty that person represents. And you wash your hands of the whole matter. There is also uh, a cultural tendency to uh, as, you know, wash your hands of things. And we're, we're dealing with that in a specific way right now where we do need to wash our hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a cultural uh, uh, so the, the virus aside, there is a tendency to want to stay clear of things that seem uh, troublesome or difficult or challenging or perplexing. And to a certain extent, that's understandable and healthy. But when it goes to extremes, as it often does in self-help literature and in advice that purports to, to tell you the route to success and the route to fulfillment, it becomes a route to impoverishment because then all that you're able to hear is what makes you feel good. All that you're able to recognize is what you already recognize and know. And that person who is sitting next to you, who you've decided is toxic, who may have lost a family member or who may have a a, a personality quirk that you simply don't understand is right. simply being shut off at that point. Yeah. And I think even in just in using the term toxic or any term that saying that a person is toxic, it means that their whole being is toxic when it could be that they're perhaps exhibiting what could be like toxic behavior. But there's a difference between like uh, discussing someone's behavior because it could be something that's solvable and it could be something that's driving that behavior versus saying that an entire person's character is toxic. And that's, I think that's becomes abusive when you attach the label, when you attach like negative labels, loaded labels to an individual's being and an individual's character when it, rather than perhaps just looking at a, a behavior, right? Yes. And sometimes the behaviors are things that a person isn't aware of or is aware of, and it's coming from a particular place. There's a particular reason for it. And sometimes there are things that people go through and they are they, they have a behavior that does annoy people for a while, but it's something that they're working on and it changes over time. So p- part of the problem here is the lack of conversation, the lack of uh, willingness to address the person in question. Toxic is also a way of not only describing the whole person, um, but also avoiding some some kind of exchange with this person, asking what is going on or saying this has been bugging me or whatever the case may be, which could open up something unexpected. I had a, in high school, this brings up a memory in high school. I had a very good friend who one day she approached me and she said, there's been something bugging me and I need to talk with you about it. Something you've been doing. And I was horrified. And I, I was, I couldn't wait. I wanted to find out what it was because I could. I was wondering what, what what could it be, and I was in suspense. And I think I had to wait a day until we met or something like that. And and I was racking my mind. And we sat down to talk, and she said, 
Sometimes when you're not sure what you're going to say and you're searching for the word, you make a kind of scratching noise in your throat and you say, uh, 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 and she said, and it really gets on my nerves. And I just, <laughs> and I just laughed because it was the last thing that had occurred to me. I'd right. been thinking about a hundred other things, but it was this little mannerism that I didn't even know about that was fixable. That sure. was happened to be bothering her, and it was no sacrifice of integrity to get rid of that stuttering in my throat. It was fairly easily addressed. But what if you're a stutterer and you can't help it? That's another problem. There are people who who have certain things like stuttering or or other mannerisms that really are not maybe a little bit within their control, but not much. And it is wrong to judge a person on the basis of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this sets us up to be individuals that lack empathy, which is what we need more of in the world rather than less. Because there really is an enormous power in language. And I remember as, you know, as uh, a tween and going into adolescence, I, I always really disliked the phrase that other kids used to say, which is, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that always used to bother me as even as, you know, as, as a, as a teenager, because I'm like, well, actually know that they can hurt a lot. (laughs) The way that you talk about someone, the way that you talk about something can really change. It can either be empowering or the exact opposite. So I always found that even just in like child's play, which, which in some ways actually opened up the, the way for bullying was that saying, Hey, you know, whatever I say doesn't matter when it's the exact opposite. It's exactly what you say opposite. does matter, <laughs> right? It matters a lot. And in Judaism, for instance, that what you say is taken very seriously. There's the uh, the phrase Lashon Hara, which is evil tongue, which is not talking about evil spirits. It's saying bad things about other people. And that's considered very bad to say bad things about other people. But what if you have a problem with a person? And, and the, the standard that I try to set for myself, and I don't I, I can't live up to it all the time. I break it. Is that uh, that if I have that I don't say I don't talk about a person in ways that I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't say things about a person that I wouldn't say directly to the person. So my litmus test I, I try just I try to test myself with this question: Am I willing to say this directly to the person? Now that doesn't always I'm not always able to do that. And like anybody, I I can talk about somebody negatively, but I feel very bad afterwards and I feel that I've done something wrong. In some, even with the person doesn't know it at all, I've damaged something by talking about that person in that way. But sometimes, but but even talking to a person, you can be confrontational in a way that isn't helpful and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not about to write a book about how people should conduct their relationships, but being uh, a questioning approach seems in the, the, the book in so many ways is about willingness to ask questions. And that applies to relationships as well. Are you willing to ask the person in a gentle way what is actually going on instead of assuming? Absolutely. And I think that that really talks about or it's the idea, the notion of, uh, fun, you know, foundational respect. So without empathy and without respect, we're in trouble just as humanity, right? Yes. Because those two things are just so, so important. And it's, and we're all humans and, and we, we make mistakes. And, and I think that, yeah, the, 
that it's 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 sadly it can be easy to for to forget or to even slip into um being disrespectful even in the smallest ways and that can be incredibly hurtful to someone um and so i think yeah empathy and respect are are two things that um i think go go along really well with the things that you talk about in in the book and in language and and being very aware of what we say and you know it's not only just the actions but definitely in in the words and how we speak absolutely um so thank you diana we've taken up a lot of your time um as we wrap up can you can you tell us what are you working on? What's what's the next awesome book that we can read from you? Well, okay, so for a few things, I'm working on several translation projects, which I'm enjoying very much. And when I say several, usually I'm focusing on one at a time, simply because of the lack of time outside of teaching. But one is from the Lithuanian, uh, translating some more poems by Tomas Venslova, whom I've translated in the past. And and these are beautiful, more recent poems. And I've, I've been involved in And then I'm also translating two Hungarian authors, one poet and one author of stories. And this just, I have so much to do, but I enjoy (laughs) it so much working with their language. And and that's a separate conversation, translation, but I enjoy it tremendously. And for my next book, I have an idea, but I've, I've had the policy so far of not talking about it until at least there's a draft, and this is not secrecy. This is not any worry that someone would steal. They could steal the idea, go do whatever you want with it. That's not a problem. <laughs> but it's more that I'm more focused if I don't talk about it too soon. Something fizzles if I talk about it too soon. So I have the idea. It's somewhat related to the first two books, but not very much. Yeah, and- no, I, I I totally understand that. I am the same way. Um, of uh, I, I, where I understand it's not about secrecy, but it's it's kind of you know the the passion that we ourselves have and, and want to kind of drive until we we have this idea solid enough to to, to talk about. So I, I completely understand and, and respect that. So I'm uh, again, this is such a great book. Um, I'm uh, so so glad that I got to, to chat with you. So thank you again um, for joining us, Diana, and thank you to all of our listeners. And we will see you next time. Cheers and stay sane out there.